Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. When it comes to the questions we explore in our episodes, we know we're onto something good if more than one person asks about it. And that's the case with today's episode. Eric Andrews wants to know about the history of Phoenix's Union Station. Ditto with Trevor Huxham, who asked if there are any plans to restore Amtrak's service there. Answering that question today is our editor, Katie O'Connell. I grew up outside of Chicago. It was about a 25-minute metro ride away from Chicago's Union Station. And from there, I could take a train up north to visit family and friends in Milwaukee, or I could head south and start a new semester of college. I could even ride as far as New Orleans, which I did once, or Washington, D.C. But that kind of train travel isn't possible in the city of Phoenix. At least it's not today. Decades ago, well, that was a different story. So let's go back to the beginning. Phoenix had rail travel as early as the 1890s. Here's John Talton. He's a former columnist for the Arizona Republic and a local historian. Well, each railroad, when it came to Phoenix in in the 1890s, built its own station around uh, Central Avenue and the railroad tracks. And... um, these were primitive stations and had outgrown their usefulness. The, the city had grown a lot, and they agreed to build a union station, which would be served by both railroads, the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe. Phoenix Union Station officially opened on October 1st, 1923. More than 30,000 Phoenicians and other well-wishers from across the state joined in the celebration. Attendees walked through the Spanish mission-style building. They strolled through the train cars while locomotive whistles rang. The mayor at the time, Louis B. Whitney, tied a key to a balloon with silk strings and sent it into the sky. Four bands played while confetti streamed down. Dancing and music continued well past midnight. Now, Phoenix Union Station may have opened in 1923, but it really took off in 1926. That's when a transcontinental line was added. It could take you anywhere in the United States through connections, but it was Phoenix's... uh, gateway to the world, and it was the world's gateway to Phoenix. Phoenix Union Station would play a crucial role in the city in the following decades. Its operators survived the Great Depression, which meant they were fully operational when World War II started. To a nation at war, nothing is more vital than transportation. For only that nation possessing efficient mass transport facilities could hope to survive the ordeal of modern conflict. In Phoenix, troops arrived in trains to head to the newly built Luke Air Force Base, then known as Luke Airfield. And when soldiers were done with their training, they shipped out to deployment on trains as well. 
Fortunate are we to be a nation whose economy has ever been geared to the steel rail and the driving locomotive. For this, as never before, is a war of movement. German POWs were moved here by trains, and the city's cotton and citrus crops were transported across the country. And spread over this vast land are the farmers, their wives and their children. 30 million, twice as many as the Axis has soldiers. Uh, Phoenix was at the center of an agricultural empire. Uh, one of its nicknames was American Eden, and I think at its height, at its height, we had 600,000 acres under cultivation, and anything would grow in the alluvial soil of the Salt River Valley. All you had to do was put water on it, and in addition to cotton and citrus, uh, some of the finest citrus in the world, you could grow anything in Phoenix, and we did, and we shipped it out of the warehouse district, which was anchored by Union Station. These embattled farmers are armed. Their weapons are the panzer forces of food's battle line, farm machinery, battalions of combines, regiments of trucks, divisions of corn pickers, potato diggers, planting machines, columns of milking machines, and all these machines kept in repair by farmers and their sons under the stress of war. But something started to change in the 1950s. There are big factors, and that is in, after World War II, the federal government started heavily subsidizing uh, airports and highways, while uh, the federal government and the states heavily taxed railroads. And this continued until 1980. And so this automatically put railroads at a terrible disadvantage. More and more and more cars. More on our roads than last year. And there'll be more next year. And the year after that, more and more cars. In the 1950s, our roads were treated as an item of national security. Fueled by Cold War tensions, President Dwight D. Eisenhower wanted to make it safer for those who lived in cities to evacuate in case of an attack. Well, there isn't even enough room now. Today, many of our highways are already obsolete. What would happen on them during a national emergency? The entire population under panic conditions trying to escape. Congress passed the National Interstate Defense Act that's otherwise known as the Federal Highway Aid Act of 1956. Here's how Federal Highway Administrator Bertram D. Tallamy described the project. The program involves the construction of 41,000 miles of expressway connecting every segment of the United States. In addition to that, it includes the construction of many hundreds of thousands of miles of state highways of city arterial routes, and of secondary roads. We usually call those farm-to-market highways. Some new interstate routes were built, while others were expanded. Major roadways in Arizona were part of that plan, including Interstates 10 and 17. The Federal Highway Aid Act of 1956 had many effects. In some areas of the country, it further enforced segregation— My teammate Taylor Seeley is working on an episode that explored whether or not that happened in Arizona. But we can definitively say this. 
in 1945, there were just over 154,000 cars registered in the entire state of Arizona. But our population grew exponentially after World War II. According to a 2011 Arizona Transportation History Report from the Arizona Department of Transportation, by 1969, just 22 years later, there were 1.2 million cars registered in our state. That's almost nine times the number of cars in just over two decades. Phoenix Union Station was still an important part of the bustling warehouse district in the 50s and 60s. John has fond memories of visiting it as a child. Uh, I went down there as a boy as many times as I could get my grandmother to take me to watch the trains come and go. But the government stopped using trains to move mail in 1968. It was a huge blow to the locomotive industry. Combined with the boom in highway transportation and the ease of air travel from Phoenix's Sky Harbor Airport, train transport in Arizona would steadily decline. That brings us to 1995. By 1995, there was only one interstate passenger train running through Phoenix. That was Amtrak's Sunset Limited. The route stretched from New Orleans to Los Angeles. Now, Amtrak may have operated the trains that ran on that route, but they didn't own the actual physical tracks themselves. Those were owned at the time by Southern Pacific Lines. The Southern Pacific, which owned the rails that Amtrak used, asked the state to pay for part of uh, rehabilitating the line west from Phoenix to Welton, which is just to the east of Yuma, where it joins the southern main line, and rehabilitate this line so that it would be up to um, higher speed train service, like 75 miles per hour. Those updates would have cost anywhere between $25.7 million to $27 million. And once the lines were improved, the cost didn't end. It would have cost about $2.5 million annually to keep them in shape. Amtrak couldn't afford that price tag. In fact, a Republic article from June 24, 1995, said that Amtrak was facing a $240 million shortfall that year. That's almost 10 times the amount of money the repairs would have cost. But if the money wasn't raised, Southern Pacific would shut down that portion of rail, which would end passenger travel in Phoenix. Then, on October 9th, 1995, an Amtrak train on its way from Phoenix to Los Angeles derailed. Felt almost like being shook to your feet by an earthquake. Fire department. We have an emergency uh, Amtrak train. One person died and more than 100 people were injured. FBI agents suspected sabotage. 
there was a possibility that it was an act of domestic terrorism. Joe Arpaio was the Maricopa County Sheriff at the time. He said that a one or two page message signed Sons of Gestapo were found at the site of the derailment. Two men were seen running from the scene. The saboteurs had removed 29 spikes along a section of the track, but they bypassed the electrical sensors that would have warned Amtrak that something was wrong. It had been 18 hours since a train ran on that line. With the right tools, authorities said that crime would have taken 10 minutes. The case remains unsolved today. The train derailment wasn't the reason Amtrak stopped its service, but it did highlight the poor condition of the tracks. Ultimately, the city of Phoenix said it couldn't help repair the tracks. It was dealing with a budget shortfall on its bus system and couldn't afford to take on both projects. The state declined to help as well. After all, only 21,000 people were riding it annually. That's 9,000 people less than attended the station's opening in 1923. And that's the number of people who were riding over the course of a year. Unable to afford the repairs, Amtrak stopped using that portion of track, which is now abandoned. And it's a terrible tragedy, a terrible lost opportunity. Uh, All over the country, uh, cities and states have joined with the private railroads to uh, build the proper infrastructure for these trains. Arizona didn't do it. On June 2nd, 1996, Amtrak Sunset Limited left Phoenix for one last time. Four bands may have played at the station's opening, but when the last train departed, two choruses of Auld Lang Syne were sung. Taps were played. With that closing, Phoenix became the largest metropolitan city in the U.S. without passenger rail service. It's a descriptor that remains true today. Now, if you want to catch an Amtrak train, you have to head to the city of Maricopa instead. So that's the history of Phoenix Union Station, as well as the reason there is an Amtrak service to it today. But Trevor also asked about the future of Amtrak service. Could it return to Phoenix Union Station? Now, Phoenix Union Station is on the National Register of Historical Places, as well as Phoenix's Register of Historical Places. That means the building itself isn't going anywhere. You can still see it today on 4th Avenue, just south of Jackson Street near downtown. Currently, it's owned by Sprint, and it houses equipment for the company. But I asked an expert if it could ever be used for train travel in the future. Audra Kester-Thomas, and I'm the Transportation Planning Program Manager at the Maricopa Association of Governments. Right now, there are not any plans to bring Amtrak service back to Phoenix. Just from an expense standpoint, including repairs, it's not a viable option at the moment. But there are other ways that building could be reused. 
it could be a part of a commuter rail system that Audra and her team have been studying for 10 years. That system would repurpose about 110 miles of freight train tracks that already exist. And that's one of the reasons um, it's a unique opportunity. Um, so there's a lot of infrastructure in place. The system would have two lines. So one would run from Buckeye in the west through downtown Phoenix, then all the way out to Florence. Another line would start in Wickenburg in the Northwest Valley, running through Peoria into downtown, and ending near Wild Horse Pass and I-10 south of Tempe. So if those routes are created, they could, hypothetically, roll through Phoenix Union Station. It's a really attractive option, but it's certainly not a cheap option. Um, the capital costs alone, uh, we're estimating for the entirety of the 110 miles, would be anywhere between 25 to $3 billion total, um, with annual operating costs of approximately $40 million a year for the entire system. Given that price tag, I asked Audra if it was a viable option. You know, I'm not sure. You know, it's, it's certainly uh, an option. It's uh, we're looking already at, you know, easily a, a $60 billion deficit in terms of needed transportation investments over the next 25 years and known revenue sources. And so, um, you know, this is one of those options our policymakers will be considering this fall and winter and weighing against um, different trade-offs. But if those in power opt into this plan, Phoenix Union Station could be given new life. Well, I think, you know, it is a historic place, and so there is, is something um, novel about returning service to a facility at its original purpose um, in a different era. Well, Kayla, I hope that sufficiently answers Eric and Trevor's questions. My key takeaway from all of this is that, as a region, we've invested a lot of money in our roadways. So it'll take a lot for us to pivot to other kinds of transportation. That means Union Station might not have trains passing through it anytime soon, although the option is still there. Now, Kayla, if you had that option, would you take it? Have you ever gone on an Amtrak trip before? My only memory of riding trains is when I would visit my grandparents in Wisconsin and we would take the train into Chicago. And I absolutely loved it, in part because it's like really novel and my brother loved trains, so he would actually sit down and be quiet on the train. But I'm sure it's also in part because I was going straight to the American Girl store. No way. What a small world. My family has taken the exact same train to bring my little sister to the American Girl doll store. Small, small world. <laughs> anyway, one quick note before I'm done here today. Uh, audio in today's episode came from the 1944 railroad publicity film Lifeline of the Nation. We also had audio from the 1942 Walt Disney and U.S. Department of Agriculture film Food Will Win the War. Additional archival audio came from the 1957 Interstate Highway promotional film, We'll Take the High Road, as well as AZ Family. Well, Valley 101 listeners, that's all we have for today. We know you have a ton of other transportation questions. 
We're tackling an episode about why Grand Avenue runs on a diagonal in a few weeks. But if there's anything else you want to know, let us know on Twitter at Valley101Pod or online at valley101podcast.azcentral.com. Thanks so much for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Kayla White signing off for today. We'll be back next week with more.